Reaction. 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 By Home Things. Nice. Gold dust. You're listening to Reaction by Home Things. In today's virtual hot seat, we have travel writer, filmmaker, and storyteller Ash Bardwaj. We discuss everything from his experiences of trekking the globe, the importance of storytelling and the role it plays in painting a picture of our world, and how the current pandemic might shape the future of travel. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. Ash Bardwaj, explorer, traveller, storyteller, adventurer. I feel like there's all many, a plethora of adjectives I could probably use to describe you. But before we get cracking, I want to ask you a bonkers fact. So is there anything that you can bring to the table that's bonkers? We'll do a trade-off. Uh, yeah, okay. So yeah, yeah, I think you have introduced me with my much hyphenated different <laughs> careers there. But I am half Indian and... My Indian name is actually the name of a an a ancient Hindu saint, Saint Bharadwaj, who apparently uh, gave God Krishna a lift uh, to heaven on a chariot. That is ru- rumored of what he did. That's that was his fame. Um, but on my dad's side of the family, I'm a, I'm an officer in the British Army Reserve now. But on my dad's side of the family, his dad used to work for the Viceroy, looked after the Viceroy's train. One of their cousins was arrested with Gandhi and Nehru as part of the civil disobedience against uh, the British, to try and get the British to quit India. And then another one of their cousins was actually arrested for terrorism, for trying to acquire explosives to attack British soldiers in Peshawar in the early 20th century. So I have three very different approaches to British rule amongst my Indian family. <laughs> I love that. I feel like very different um, people to take on the Bardwaj name. Very different <laughs> approaches. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that is a, that's a great fact. I feel it's on a very different tone to what I'm about to bring to the table, which is that I learned yesterday, you may already know this, that in a person's belly button, you can harbour up to 67 different types of bacteria. Only 67? Somehow I would think there would be more. There's quite a lot of different bacteria on the skin, so. Well, sure, but 67 sounds like a lot. And I guess my question is, is, is that relative for innies and outies? Because I would have thought an innie belly button, you know, is a lot more of a crevice to harbor those bacteria, can't really escape it, maybe not as cleanly. Not that I'm belly buttonist, but you know, it's a fact for us to all ponder in life. Yes, I'm, I'm guessing you are an outie. I feel like I'm gonna have to check, but my gut instinct is that I am. Or at least I hope so. If not, otherwise I've just really dug myself into a hole. But belly buttons aside, I gave you a bit of an intro. But it'd be great to hear from your own words. You know, tell us a bit about yourself. Still a black vibes. You know, what's your name? Where'd you come from? <laughs> uh, well, I guess fundamentally, I would say that storytelling is is the single track that follows through everything I do, and I use different medium to tell stories. And the stories that I like to tell are usually stories about places that we think we know, but we don't know as much as we like to believe. So whether that's going to New Zealand to learn a bit more about the Maori culture in New Zealand, or going to the Baltic states to find out about the legacy of um, Soviet rule. And I like to tell those stories either through words, I've got a column in the Telegraph travel section. I write freelance for quite a few different papers. Radio, so I do reports for the BBC World Service and Radio 4. Podcasting, I've got my own podcast 
my friend Pip called The First Mile, which is going to start up soon. Uh, or video. So I've done a few bits and pieces for TV and I do a lot of stuff for brands and things like that online. So storytelling, usually of travel through different medium. Nice. So just a pretty great job, it sounds like to me. So looking at what I can only describe as an online CV for yourself is about as steep as I can scratch the surface, but things like cowboy, rugby player, ski instructor, all come up under you, which I guess, you know, those alone, aside from, you know, the adventuring and storytelling must have led you to some pretty like fantastic places. So thinking about all the places that you've been to and all the things that you've done so far, I mean, there's probably still so much more to explore, so much more to see. But I think what's interesting is looking at it from a kind of planetarian point of view. So thinking about, you know, global warming, the climate crisis, plastic pollution, all these things that seem to be affecting so many places in the world. Have you seen kind of firsthand this kind of unravel through your adventures over the years and all the different places that you've been? Yeah, so I got into travel really through my mum. I grew up in social housing, but my mum got me into doing a scholarship for a private school. I then went back into the state system, but she worked as a cleaner and saved up so that I could go to New Zealand to play rugby with my state school when I was in sixth form. And that really invoked in me that interest in travel in the first place. And I then went to India the year after I finished school. And going back to India most recently on Lev Wood's television series, Walking the Himalayas, I saw how much it had changed. And obviously the population of India had grown quite a lot in 20 years, but also the middle class had grown and also the economy had grown. And the impact of that from a place which, when I first went in 1991 at the age of nine and then went again after school and then again when I was uh, 33, the change in the number of people in cars, the number of people of uh, moving around the country, buying disposable goods or temporary goods, the number of items and things you could get at one of the stalls that was wrapped in plastic, whether that was um, pan, which is stuff that they chew and like a sort of tobacco-y thing that they spit out, or snacks or shampoo. Everything came in single-use plastics. And when you see the impact of that, um, it's quite clear how much that has grown, how much that has changed. The fact that you can't see the Himalayas from northern in, most of northern India anymore. You can see the impact in the air and in terms of waste. So that was the easiest one for me to see the, the differences of. I think in Britain, the difference is a much more subtle one. And it's the subjective belief that the weather patterns feel to have changed. Our summers feel warmer to me. And it's things like just getting less blood splattered on your car as you're driving along the road. So there must be a reduction in the insect population in Britain. So I'm, I did science in my levels, actually taught science at secondary school as another one of my hyphenated jobs. But I'm not a scientist who's um, been researching all of the facts. But as a, a traveller and a person telling stories about places and always involving current affairs and science in those stories where I can, there has been a real difference in the places that I've seen in the times that I've been traveling to them. Yeah, definitely. And I guess maybe, maybe you haven't necessarily had those conversations, but thinking about your experience with India and going there kind of all those years ago and then kind of revisiting more recently, do you feel that there's been a kind of atmospheric shift or a change in like what the, in how the people who live there 
view these kind of developments? Because on the one hand, I suppose, you know, the use of single use plastic for them being able to, you know, buy goods more easily or, or have, you know, all these different things available to them that necessarily weren't there 10, 20 years ago. So on the one hand, you know, we, especially in this country, I think view single use plastic as, you know, a really uh, bad thing. We're thinking about the planet, but I guess at the same time, you know, culturing conversationally, that's not necessarily always the case. Have you ever had any kind of conversations with people firsthand who have actually expressed that they they like the way that that's going? Yeah, there seems to be quite a disparaging tone to the way we speak to people in the recently developed world about the way they use single plastics or the way they use um, vehicles and so on. All they're really doing is matching the quality of life and the way that we live our lives here in Britain. Now, if you go to any supermarket, you see how much single-use plastic there is there. And that single-use plastic has quite a good purpose. You know, it sort of reduces the damage to food. Like cucumbers, they're always wrapped in plastic. And you always wonder why. It's because it reduces the damage. And there's a carbon impact of having to throw away food. And for us, we don't see the impact of that single-use plastic because we just chuck it in the bin. We've got a pretty well-developed um, disposal system here in the UK. Whereas in somewhere like India, the disposal system is not as well developed. And indeed, the UK ships a lot of its waste to countries all around the world. So it is a difficult thing for us in places like Britain to lecture countries or the people of places like India, or the Philippines is another one, Nepal, um, about the way they use single-use plastics or the way they use um, other technologies that have a very negative impact on the world. And I think we just simply have to... If we're going to be the ones having the desire to tell others how to live better, and I do think we have to reduce the single-use plastic, we have to reduce our carbon footprint, we have to be shown to be absolute leaders in it first and show them how they can improve their quality of life without destroying the environment. Some of this is completely attitudinal. And um, having been a school teacher and, and having been an officer in the Army Reserve, I suppose that sort of instructional element comes out in me every now and again and being in India in a place called Manali which is a stunning place in the foothills of the Himalayas seeing a group of young lads from Delhi sat at a waterfall smoking a packet of cigarettes eating some crisps and then just chucking it in the waterfall I mean lecturing them about destroying the environment so there is an educational thing about it there are some people who are just like really idle there but then you see what's been happening in Britain recently at Bournemouth, people who are supposedly wild camping and just leaving waste everywhere. Um, you know, people are going to litter. You have to set up systems and make it harder for them to litter. You have to, education, you have to educate them on how not to litter. But you also have to create products that are biodegradable. You have to create products that do not require single-use plastics. That's tricky because it's become convenient. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think you're right. I think... Unfortunately, you can't expect people to necessarily change their habits if there's so few options out there. Like who who would we be to to preach to say, oh, don't buy single use plastic if your option is single use plastic or single use plastic? You know, I think it's it's up to us to try and I guess want that change, but also for you know the big boys and the big players and and the leaders of huge conglomerates to actually offer those solutions and like you said, be the first, be the leaders. You know, set set a precedent in a way. Something. Um, interesting that you said as well about kind of carbon footprints and it kind of goes back to I guess you know this slightly um westernized preachy narrative of something that keeps coming up a lot in climate activism especially is about 
travel and about air travel and you know you see all these people all the time now saying oh no I'm now flight free and I'll never get on a plane again and you know I guess in the world of sustainability it's you know traveling has become a, a little bit of a taboo which is strange you know when I guess you know to be able to expand our our minds and our visions and you know understand people travel is so so important and you know something that you've you've built quite a good career on you know traveling and storytelling and being able to explore these places so with with that in mind I guess like what's your personal view on you know I guess being responsible for our own carbon footprint in regards to travel be it flight or driving or just traveling full stop I think uh one of the things that I find uncomfortable about the climate conversation is the enormous weight that's put on individuals to alter the way we behave when we do need legislation and corporations to take the biggest action. If government was like, right, rather than spending 300 billion propping up businesses that might have failed, let's spend that on new green jobs in improving the insulation of houses across the UK or something like that. I think we need to have better, more thought through legislative and economic approaches, first and foremost. On the individual perspective, I think COVID-19 has shown us that we don't necessarily need to travel as much or as far as we thought that we did. And I think that's been useful. I think it's a reminder that so much of our travel is a product of marketing towards us that we've chosen to take on and we may not necessarily have needed. I also think that a lot of people travel to places without really experiencing the place. It's very easy to go to somewhere like India, um, South America, Thailand, and spend all of your time with a bunch of other European travelers. So people say, I've gone there to expand my mind. So have you, or have you just gone there to get stoned with other people from your hometown? <laughs> and I think, you know, this notion that we need to go really, really far, it's effectively just leveraging currency um, differences and cheapness in other countries to basically have a party somewhere and pass offers cultural insight. Now that's not to say that travel doesn't expand your mind but I also do think we should be honest about what we're really doing when we're traveling and I think one of the great revelations of the COVID-19 lockdown has been forcing us to appreciate our local areas a lot more and to recognize that even a place like Britain has huge cultural differences if you really want to look below it below the surface and uh, that's useful now I say that as someone who kind of was able to get a lot of my long distance traveling done in an era before I was really conscious of climate change to the same extent or because it full of such a big awareness so I sit in a slightly privileged position maybe in 20 years time young people will look back at me and say uh, the way we look at people who bought houses 20 years ago so oh, it's easy for you um, but you know I think there's also good ways of traveling that are a lot less carbon damaging. I mean, you can take trains literally to southeast, like you can take trains all the way across Siberia and all the way down to the southeast corner of China and Singapore. So you can do that. It takes a bit longer, but maybe that's how we should be doing long distance travel. You know, and I much prefer to get on the Eurostar to get to Europe than I ever would to jump on a plane. So maybe we just need to travel better rather than travel less. So um, obviously in kind of preparing for, you know, this chat with you and doing a little bit of stalking, who doesn't love online stalk, I stumbled across on YouTube your um, talk, I suppose it was, at the Union Chapel for Moth Radio Hour. 
and I listened to the whole thing about your Indian pilgrimage and it was fascinating it was genuinely like a, a fantastic story and I think the way that you tell it and you know use the words to describe your experience and kind of build that story you know had a very clear beginning middle end etc I think there's something really powerful about words and the way that we can use words either kind of verbally or written down to be able to tell stories I guess it's, it's what you do you're a storyteller so how important do you think the role is of storytelling in kind of travel writing a but also in painting a, a better picture of our world so maybe for people for example who I've never been to India or, you know, don't know much about an Indian pilgrimage, I guess in a similar way to how you just reflected back on, you know, when people say they're traveling, you know, what does traveling really mean for people? Is it going interrailing, but actually going to go get drunk really cheap in a bunch of kind of pubs in Prague? Or actually, can we use these stories from other people, from people who have these experiences to shape a completely different narrative and maybe help shape our perspective on, you know, how these countries are and then I guess help to develop our vision of of the of the world outside where we live. Well thank you very much for talking about the more thing. I think of all of my pieces of work, that was one of the ones I was proudest of and, and found most fulfilling. It was a great project to do in the team at the Moth are very good at helping you craft your story in a way that is still honest to you. Uh, different to say TED, where every TED talk sounds pretty much the same. Uh, the great thing about Moth Talks is they all sound very much with the person that's speaking them. And I think what a good story does is it allows you to experience something vicariously. So you can understand or feel a place or a story or an event for a person, not literally as them, but you can get such a strong feeling for it that it either helps you build empathy with that person or it excites you enough to go and experience that yourself, maybe both. And I think in a world that is riven by anger, distrust, nationalism, hate, where we need to come together to fight things like COVID-19, climate change, single-use plastics, we need to empathise and understand each other. So beyond travel writing, I think storytelling is vital. Within, story, within travel writing, you tend to have different types of travel. You have the sort of holiday travel writing. I went to the beach, this is what I saw. This is what was open, this is what the pool was like. And then you have the kind of travel writing that I've tended to do more of, which the first editor at the Telegraph to commission me called Armchair Travel Writing, where you sit back, you read it, and you experience it much more vicariously. I have always enjoyed that kind of stuff more, and I've been lucky enough to have editors who have commissioned me to do that sort of thing. I think another vital thing on storytelling, and the moth story is a good example of this is the importance of diversity in the people telling the stories. So my experience as a half Indian going to India would be very different to yours um, as a blonde woman going to India. Um, and it would be very different to a black woman going to India. Uh, I think one of the interesting, interesting, um, one of the stories that we've not really heard around all the stuff around BLM at the moment is the enormous amount of uh, racism towards black people or people of darker skin in India. It's input into the caste system. So it's important to have lots of different people telling stories because everyone has a very different experience and you need all those diverse voices to get a full understanding of it. And this is not some box ticking political correctness exercise. This is a fact that you get better stories and better insights about places if you have diverse insights into them. Yeah, of course, 100%. I think that, you know, that can ring true for 
for so many different things in life and from experiences if you're if you're only so used to hearing one way of hearing things your opinion on that subject is going to be so um pigeonholed i suppose and so blinkered whereas i think that that's the beauty of travel you know people talk about travel because it's an abundance of new experiences but that's just one person's perspective of a new experience and actually i think there's so much interest and so much depth to to gain if you even invite just one other perspective you know you don't have to ask a survey of a hundred people to review the same place but even just by opening it up just outside of your own barriers i think sometimes you can develop some interesting conversations that you maybe haven't even thought about prior and i think the important thing for the person receiving that story is being willing to receive it and when someone tells you this is my experience this is how i experienced it you can't just say well i disagree because <laughs> that was their experience of it 100 percent. i read something very similar to that about um it's off topic, but in, in terms of arguing in a relationship, I think I read this blog one time about relationships, you know, uh, how to get on with your partner better. Obviously, lockdown has been very testing for me, uh, but about, you know, how we should never undervalue someone's experience of anything and their, their version, you know, even a couple in a fight, you would have had the same fight and you both would have experienced that fight completely differently. So therefore, no person's feelings or experience is invalid. And I guess, I mean, it's a rogue way to kind of link it back to what you're saying about travel and experiences, but it's the same principle, you know, two people could have gone to the same place and have had completely different experiences. It doesn't make one correct or one more interesting or the other totally wrong. It's just totally different experience, full stop. I, think it, I also think though in travel, we have an additional reason to, you know, you know the, the point about relationships is an important one because of uh, inbuilt and inbuilt uh, structural patriarchy and the elements that, that has on our way we view relationships of the world, particularly, you know, particularly maybe not just in romantic relationships, particularly thinking about it in work. And in travel, there's a similar thing, which is that a lot of travel is done off the back of you know, a fairly colonial legacy. Uh, and it's often rich white people going to poor brown countries. And therefore the narratives that we speak the words that we say have a really powerful impact so we have to be extra cautious about what we say about place and the lived experiences of people that travel there yeah absolutely i think there's so much to be said about um you know like a white savior complex and i feel like that's coming out more and more i think i saw you wrote an article about um de decolonizing travel and all of that kind of stuff as well which i think is such a huge topic and you know something that we should all be kind of looking into and actually paying attention to rather than just being maybe a little bit whitewashed to our experiences and, and the voices that we're being told these experiences by as well so yeah i think that's so important and so valid the solution to that, well, the solution to that is mainly read more than just the normal guidebooks when you go somewhere read the books by the people of that country um I did a podcast called Edgelands, which is part of an eight and a half thousand kilometer journey from the top of Norway to Crimea. And one of the pieces of advice somebody gave me was, you know, don't just read British security analysts or British journalists talking about Russia. Read uh, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy so you can get an understanding of how Russians view themselves. Um, watch Soviet movies, watch recent Russian movies. Don't just read what foreigners say about Russia. Yeah. It's so true. And I actually wanted to ask you about um, Edgelands and that podcast. And as you explained, it was obviously uh, a bit of a project podcast about, you know, your journey, eight and a half thousand kilometers along Russia's European border. 
what's actually interesting now more so about that question is from your more diverse reading and making that effort you know think about really where where your resources are coming from were there any moments along that trip i suppose that shocked you or do you think that because you had done that background research and you hadn't just read one streamlined version of what to expect or you know how it could be do you think that maybe you were slightly more open-minded or were there still some things that you know you weren't expecting so i think less about things that shocked me or anything and more a case of i had to reconsider the prejudices i had so i'm in the army reserve i'd gone to um, Estonia in 2017 as part of a NATO deployment to deter a Russian invasion. Uh, the day that you and I are speaking is the day after the release of the Russia report. And so it's certainly true that Russia has, for some years, as a nation, been doing some quite malicious things uh, to undermine our politics, our civil society. But it's also, in some parts of the world, actually been threatening the territorial integrity of nations, Ukraine in particular, and some bits in Estonia. So that was sort of overarching picture that I went to Russia with and I'd kind of gone on this project to try and just see what what it was like in these places um, and what was really useful is as I went along trying to put myself more and more in the shoes of ethnic Russians whether those are Russians in Russia who um, buy into the narrative that NATO is trying to threaten Russia it isn't <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I, I started to empathise a little with the Russian view of why should we have an American hegemonic world? Is that good for us? You know, the narrative about having American hegemony without any uh, anybody to stop America doing things like Iraq or Libya, is that problematic? So developing one's empathy a bit more along those things. Um, in Ukraine, I went to the front line of the conflict with Russia. There's an area called Donbass, which is now a war zone with uh, Russian-backed separatists and Russian agents basically started an uprising, which was uh, eventually sort of militarily contained. But a large area of land is now under the control of this, this group of separatists, largely run by former Russian in, uh, intelligence agents. Um, but near you know, all the people that live there are ethnic Russian, you know, so they're, they're really torn about this. They're like, we can see what's been going on here is not what we want. But at the same time, where the direction Ukraine was going in beforehand, maybe not wasn't what I wanted either. And this sort of quite visceral nationalism that kind of popped up really upset them. And there was fear of revolution, partly stirred up by by, by media. Um, and I'd kind of gone there expecting it to be to just see rack and ruin. And the Donbass region is kind of an old industrial zone. So there's lots of open coal, mit, uh, coal pits, there used to be a lot of industrial pollution, lots of steel mining, like vast factories, sort of felt it was going to be very Soviet. But I arrived there in the middle of summer and I went to a tributary of the Donbass River and on the side of the Donbass River was this massive monastery and it looked like a sort of blue Tsarist version of Hogwarts up on a hill. It was... Oh the most remarkable thing and I hadn't expected it at all and I think it was a good example of how you can kind of build up an image for yourself in your mind which if you have that image then you can't help but look for it mm. so you're going to see things that um, reaffirm your unconscious bias and so the trick is to see beyond it and 
speak to people and not just go in and ask questions like, how do you feel about the Russian backing of the separatists? But it's like, what's it like living here? And how does it feel to be, I think, Russian living in Ukraine? And asking them questions about their lives and them, you know, and chatting to the secretary of the mayor of a town called Novgorodsk, which used to be called New York 80 years ago. That's actually what it was called. And her telling me about how much she missed going to watch football in the city of Donbass and how much she missed the bars and restaurants of this lovely city in southeastern Ukraine and how she couldn't talk to her sister who lives over there now because she'd really bought into all the ideas of the separatists. And, you know, telling her story where she's got a real sadness and she's like, I don't know what is my home anymore. So, yeah, that was intriguing. That's so intriguing. Yeah, it's so interesting. And for, I mean, anyone who hasn't listened to Edgelands, it's on Spotify, it's on all the podcast bases. I would recommend going to go check that out. So I feel like in today's climate, it would be wrong to, actually would be right to not mention COVID-19 for one day. But at the same time, it's very topical. It's something that we're all experiencing. I guess we, you kind of actually touched on it before, but in terms of, you know, a pandemic and how it's really affected our travel currently. And like you said, kind of encouraging people to maybe look closer to home, you know, where where can you go and have these adventures and discover parts of, you know, somewhere that's actually just down down the road from you that you may never have explored before. Do you think that um, the current pandemic and maybe with a view of us now maybe being slightly more anxious towards future pandemics or, or the future of world and global health, do you think that that's going to affect the future of travel? Yeah, and I was in the midst of doing some planning, some trips to India to go and follow my family heritage, actually. And if you see the way the pandemic is really ripping through India right now, you know, when will that ever happen? So there's a whole load of work that just won't occur anymore. We'll have to change the way we do things. So, our, you know, planned trips of mine have stopped, um, probably indefinitely. Filming abroad is going to be really hard because how can you get insurance for something that you know is a really high risk. So production companies will just say, actually, do you know what? We can't take that financial risk on ourselves of you all getting out there and the whole trip getting cancelled and you all having to come back. So certain storytelling is just going to stop. Um, there, I imagine travel for business, for business meetings may never recover because we've all learned how to do conversations like this over Zoom. And if... You know, there were people who used to fly all the way to Tokyo to do a one-hour meeting or something. You know, I think maybe if they're still trying to secure massive business deals, then they'll be doing that. But I think more and more people will say, is the time, is the cost, is the carbon footprint worth it? Um, and hopefully more and more business will be done without having to travel. So I think travel for business may never recover. In terms of holidays, well, people are just forced to make do with what they have. And you know, are you any happier by going to the south of Spain than the south of France than you are going to Dorset? I mean, maybe you are. In which case you think, well, how do I still fit those things into my life? Um, do I need to go all the way to Bali to do it? Well, probably not. Maybe we'll have a lot more local holidays. So will European tourism see a resurgence in a few years? I know Ibiza, for example, has had to close all of its nightclubs. So the kind of holidays that are going on in that island right now are much more of a way that Ibiza was 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and I think the island probably likes that. And I think you will start to see things that people wanted have 
been forced to happen are things that people didn't want to be forced to happen and therefore we change that so you know i think um people are going to be less keen on city breaks probably more keen on um outdoor breaks so that sort of thing is good and i think there'll be a greater focus on local suppliers and international suppliers so i think there could be some good outcomes of it as well yeah definitely and i think what's interesting is what what i've definitely learned in this time as well is that so much of that kind of traveling for holiday is so much actually of just a mindset i think we're so conditioned because of the ease and especially where we are you know positioned in europe and you know rip being part of the eu the the ease to you know just fly over to barcelona or, or jump on the train to paris we've kind of conditioned ourselves that it's not a holiday or it's not a break unless you are in a different country unless you know you're ordering beer in a different language yeah. for some reason those weird kind of cues we're conditioned to think of as being a holiday whereas actually maybe it's more just about i guess getting creative and realizing that taking a holiday is actually much more of a mental thing rather than a physical thing so if we can apply that that learning and that understanding to like you said dorset or devon or kent or norfolk and all these beautiful places that probably most of us haven't even been to or thought about hopefully we can enjoy you know stuff that's on our own front door and put back into our our own economies and help you know local businesses and local produce etc etc i think it's that that notion of pausing and taking a break yeah and i i think uh you know, you mentioned RP, RP being part of Europe. I think the, the frictions that are going to occur as a product of, we, we have no idea what the outcome is going to be, but whatever it is, it's going to be worse than what we have at the moment in terms of freedom of movement, the costs, all those sorts of things, visas, pet passports. I, I have a sort of feeling that maybe the government were, didn't mind that because it was going to improve travel to places they wanted to build more of a relationship with. But I can't see many people wanting to get on a plane to go to uh, Dubai over the next few months or Bali or Australia even you know I think a lot of the things that we considered easy and accessible for convenience are not going to be like that anymore um, but the point you make about the mindset is a vital one how do you how do you create a sense of break and holiday without leaving England or Britain um, although before long I'm sure the United Kingdom will just be England <laughs> and carry on the path that we're going but the um, you know, I, I find city breaks or holidays actually weird as a traveller. I find holidays stressful or challenging because it's like you've got to find a hotel, you've got to review the hotel, you've got to get on a plane, you've got to get to the airport, you've got to go there, you've got to get a taxi at the other end, you have to check in, you have to find a restaurant, you've got to do all these things. I'm like, this is a lot of admin. Yeah. Why I much prefer the kind of uh, overland travels that the Edgelands was, the stuff I did with Lev Woods. When I want to get a break, I will try and find a walking route in the UK, take a tent or a bivy bag and walk that. Mm. That, is, that is relaxing to my mind. So, Yeah, I different. totally agree. It's funny, travelling is so stressful when it's ridiculous because it's like the first part of your holiday. You're like, yeah, I'm going to go on holiday. And yet you're in the airport going through security. Your bag's too heavy. Your liquids are there. It's, a, it's not necessarily the best start to a break. So. Well, I'm getting married this year and I was supposed to get married this year. It might be next year given COVID. I'm, uh, my best man was talking about a stag do and I was like, can we just do it in England? Like I've been to stag do's, I've been to weddings abroad and there's such a pain in the ass. So you've spent a lot of your life, obviously living an adventure. I'm sure you've got many, many more adventures to still have in whatever shape or form they may come. What would you say 
you're allowed to pick more than one, but I'm going to ask you what is maybe the one key lesson that you've learned along your kind of adventure, adventuring, is that a word? Adventuring, traveling, whatever. What's, what, what's one of the more kind of poignant key lessons that you've learned so far? Okay, poignant lesson I would say is just turn up. If there's something that you want to do and you want to get good at and you want to become, don't even need to become known for, but if you just want to start enjoying something, you will be crap on day one. But if you just keep turning up, you will get good at it. So the story I heard, well, it's not even a story, but you know, think about a guy like Randall Fiennes, world's greatest living explorer. There was a point when he was a baby that couldn't walk. So, you know, he got to that level of exploring by just keeping on doing things. And if you want to do anything, eventually you'll get better at it if you just keep turning up. I think that's kind of, you know, to beyond adventure, that's kind of like a lesson that I've carried through from everything. And a sort of a subset to that is um, to try lots and lots of different things and eventually you'll find things that you like. There'll be a whole load of them that you never use again. I acted when I was at university and I enjoyed it so much as a hobby. You know, I did it in my final year after being some obnoxious jock for the first two years. <laughs> I was in my final year. It was so much more fun. Like, I talked to lots of interesting people uh, and had conversations with girls when I was sober, which never happened before. But no, it was a much better, um, you know, just doing something. And that, that um, doing the acting led into public speaking. Getting used to being on stage gave me that confidence in that. I tried capoeira in my first year. Never did it again. It was a terrible idea. I just fell on my head a lot. But... Um, I also spoke, I also did a, a subsid in French in my first year, and that became really useful in getting a job as a ski instructor. So some things carry on and be useful, some things you forget, but it's important to try lots of different things because you never know what you might uh, turn into a career or just might have as an integral part of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Or just like you said, find a, a weird passion for that actually yeah. you just do because you enjoy. I feel like so often in life we're so told to, you know, this has to be a, a side hustle and you need to do this for a career. But actually you're allowed to do something just because you enjoy it as well. Like like the acting thing. OK, you know, maybe you will be in a Netflix thing next year. I'll look out for it. But at the same time, you enjoyed it. It was a good part of your life and a good experience, I think experiences are so invaluable good and bad you know for us to be able to look back on learn from reflect blah 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 we've come to the end but before i release you from your virtual hot seat what is the one track that you're listening to right now so we have set up a isolation radio station playlist on spotify and with each guest we ask them their track we add it to the playlist it's a very simple idea but what's yours <laughs> Well, uh, I've recently been listening to Underworld Born Slippy a few times, which you may know from the uh, soundtrack of Train Spotting. And that was because I was at Glastonbury four years ago and I saw Underworld play live. And uh, I, I remember Train Spotting coming out and I was so excited to hear Born Slippy be played live with uh, two of my best friends. That was wonderful. But uh, I. I'm actually listening quite a lot to the new Jesse Ware album, What's Your Pleasure? And so good. Uh, the track that I have hearted that I keep listening to is Save a Kiss. So Jesse. good. I'm very happy about that. We'll add both, but that one, yes. <laughs> Definite firm favourite. Very, so different, very different to Underworld Born Slippy, I think. <laughs> we like the diversity. I feel like that's the whole underlying root of this conversation. Ash, it has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed it too. 
Fantastic. Yeah, and if um, if anyone wants to get in touch, to drop me a message, uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter on at Ash Bardwaj. That's B H A R D W A J. Um, or just go to my website. But if anyone's got any other questions around travel or adventure, uh, you know, feel free to reach out. And thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me today. It's been lovely to meet you.